Today's episode will be dealing with suicidal ideation, death by suicide, and drug use. Listener discretion advised. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call 1-800-273-8255. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. If you're listening to this episode on release day, December 8th, 2020, it is the 40th anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon. As an enormous Beatles fan, this date has always stuck in my head. It probably helped that my childhood best friend's birthday was December 8th. Happy birthday, Liz. And I do love the song by the Cranberries, I Just Shot John Lennon. I became obsessed with the Beatles in middle school when the anthology came out. My friend Matt still likes to give me grief about my explosive expose for the school newspaper. Putting my pie chart making and interview skills to the test, I asked the tough questions like, do you think the Beatles will be as popular after the excitement of the anthology has died down? I don't remember the results, but for me, they have only become more loved and my excitement has done nothing but grow. I wasn't alive at the time of his death, but paid my respects to John Lennon by visiting Strawberry Fields and the Dakotas in New York earlier this year when Josh and I went for the Forensic Files 2 premiere. Standing in the same spot Mark David Chapman stood as he raised his gun to shoot John Lennon in the back four times was a surreal moment. I know Yoko doesn't like to acknowledge that day in December, and I don't blame her, but I couldn't help but to be inspired by the loss of one of my favorite musicians to tell the story of another and perhaps the most notorious musician death, the Pacific Northwest's own Kurt Cobain. Unconventionally, today's story isn't about a murder being solved, more so what led to Kurt's multi-day disappearance, the discovery of his body, the conspiracies that persist, and what is believed to have really happened. And since there is so much built upon speculation, I'll be throwing in my two cents as well. Everything surrounding Kurt's death is nothing but unusual. The biggest star in the world goes missing, is found dead a few days later. Was it a hit? Was it really suicide? And now, 26 years later, you can Google Kurt Cobain, death, murder, suicide, or any variation, and go down rabbit holes that would take years to get through. With conspiracies claiming everything from Courtney Love, his wife at the time had him killed by housemates, to theories that he's still alive, living a peaceful post-rock star life. One theory even goes so far as to say Rivers Cuomo, lead singer of a formerly favorite band of mine, Weezer, is actually Kurt in disguise. Interesting, since they were making music at the same time, and Rivers has even talked about how he created an algorithm of Nirvana songs to help him when writing, but okay. While I'm not going to humor most of these because it feels no different than giving QAnon airtime, I will be going in depth about the days leading up to his death and the findings of private detective Tom Grant, as his work and theories are the strongest base for the conspiracies. If you are in your late 30s or early 40s, you grew up with Nirvana. There are literally thousands of books, movies, podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs, and more about Nirvana and Kurt. So I'll spare you the deep details, but I do recommend to any Nirvana fan the documentary Montage of Heck. There's no narration, just videos, animations, personal recordings, home videos, and journals of Kurt's. Quite a bit of it is just like an extended music video. Kurt Donald Cobain was born February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington to Donald and Wendy Cobain. Married young, Donald and Wendy were a mechanic and waitress, respectively. Kurt was the first grandbaby on both sides, and in addition to getting all the attention by default, he drew it with his charm and energy. 
He was as caring as he was mischievous, always concerned with how others were feeling while also getting into trouble. Aberdeen, while a booming small city post-World War II, had become what some described as an isolated hellhole by the 1970s. With a population around 16,000 when Kurt lived there, it's easy to understand how a busy-bodied, apathetic, angry, and lonely teenager would eventually seek friends and any kind of creative expression, feeling outcast on the west side of Washington state. Donald felt his son was out of control with his loudness and obnoxious and constant attention-seeking. Wendy reported that Donald just didn't really know how to be a parent, especially to one as busy as Kurt. Donald's frustration presented itself by verbally abusing Kurt. With concerns over his behaviors rising, Wendy took Kurt to the doctor where he was diagnosed with ADD at the age of seven. That night, he was given Ritalin, and since that was causing sleep issues, he was also given sedatives, and that combo of medications became his new normal. Two years later, when Kurt was nine, Donald and Wendy divorced after Wendy realized that she had basically just settled with Donald and was unfulfilled. Doing what she thought was best, she and Kurt moved out. A theme in Kurt's life is one surrounding his fear of shame and embarrassment. He did everything he could to not experience either, but when his parents broke up and he started to be mocked at school for it, he started to shut down. This fear of shame was coupled with a need for perfection, which was something the people who knew him were aware of, but he kept it a quiet personal struggle. Not helping the situation was that his dad quickly remarried a woman with three children of her own before they had one daughter together, pushing Kurt out of the spotlight. But before it all went downhill, Kurt craved family time at his dad's. He equally craved and had disdain towards his desire to be a settled, happy family unit. Only making matters worse was that his mother remarried a physical abuser. As the bullying at school continued, Kurt started to bring it home, letting out his resentment towards his parents on not only them, but his siblings. As becoming a teenager doesn't help with such feelings and emotional management, his behavior only worsened. Soon after the initial move-out post-divorce, his mom realized she couldn't handle him, so Kurt moved in with his dad and stepmom. As those relationships got more strained, he was taken back to his mom's when he was in eighth grade. This was done unceremoniously by him and his things being packed up and dropped off on the front door by his dad. It wasn't long after that, mom learned that she hadn't gotten any better at managing his needs and behaviors, so she sent him to his aunts and uncles. From there, the grandparents. By the time he was 16, he had lived with and been kicked out of the homes of every family member in the area. Now feeling totally rejected, he couch-surfed, going from friend's house to friend's house. Kurt's journals and personal recordings showed he was struggling with what it meant to be a man, especially in a small, typical American town. He was skinny, scrawny, didn't have any traits that he felt were traditionally masculine, and had zero tolerance for toxic masculinity. Not having any girlfriends or having any sex wasn't helping the matter. It was around this age that he recounted his mother becoming verbally abusive. His rebellion was spiraling until he, at 13 years old, found marijuana. When he first started smoking, he felt relieved that he was finally able to function through the day and not be overwhelmed with anxiety and nervous breakdowns. He felt like it was a miracle. But it didn't take long for his tolerance to grow and his anger to build, rearing its ugly head. He started to hang out with kids that felt and were experiencing the same things he was. They started to break into places, smash windows, steal, drink, do drugs. They were on the extreme end of typical teenage rebellion. One such act of rebellion would lead to Kurt's first suicide attempt. When hanging with his fellow angsty teens, they would go to a specific house a few times a week. This house was home to a young woman that was mentally disabled. 
As Kurt said, they would have referred to her as a mentally retarded person, while he looked at her as more so someone that was slow or illiterate. So the group of guys would go into the house and keep the young woman distracted, while another one of the guys would go down to the cellar and steal booze. At this point, Kurt had decided he was going to jump off a roof, but wanted to know what it would be like to have sex first. He didn't have a lot of options, so he went with what was most readily available, that same young woman at the house. He went over and they talked about having sex before starting to go for it, but then for reasons I won't get into, suffice it to say there was a lack of pheromone attraction, Kurt left before consummating. When the woman's father came home, she told him what had happened and word quickly spread. The kids at school then gave him the new moniker, and I apologize in advance for using this language, retard fucker. Unable to handle the shame and embarrassment, Kurt went to the nearby train tracks one night. Stoned and drunk, he laid on the tracks and placed two concrete blocks on his body, on his chest and legs, and waited. As he watched the light approaching and the train grew closer, he then realized he had laid on the wrong side of the splitting tracks, and the train just passed him by. Not taking it as a sign so much as a reason he would have to become both physically and mentally stronger, he dreaded the idea of trying to overcome his demons and make friends as he felt everyone was disingenuous. Just as he had craved the normalcy of family, he felt the same about friendships, but the contrarian in him fought against both. With only two weeks left before high school graduation, Kurt learned he would not have enough credits to graduate, so he dropped out. At the same time, his mental health was taking a toll on his life. His journals showed frequent language surrounding mental health, such as crazy, anxious, breakdown, and so forth. Then he finally got his hands on something dark, dangerous, and that he had only ever heard of through the underbelly of the city, a punk rock album. From his first learning of what punk was from a Midwest punk magazine, he was intrigued and wanted to hear it, but Aberdeen was so small they didn't have punk records right away. Then, when he was finally able to hear punk, he fell in love. It was almost like he knew he would love it before even hearing the first note. That was all it took for him to know what he wanted to do with his life. Playing with toy drums and guitars since he was a child, he had become quite skilled on his acoustic guitar as a teenager. As he aged, it became one of his only tools for solace, and he knew he was going to become a singer-songwriter. An hour east in Olympia, the punk scene was blossoming into something of legend, so he started his first band, Fecal Matter, which would go through multiple member and name changes before in 1987 with Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl becoming Nirvana. Kurt used his perfectionism to his advantage. Not just some junky punk kid, he expected the rest of the guys to meet at least five nights a week to practice, even writing a note to Dave Grohl about it, basically calling him out for not putting more effort into the band. They would play in their own house, Kurt even saying, if two people came by to listen to us practice, we counted that as a gig. In what I felt was a very inspiring visual, there is a scene in Montage of Heck where he has his mic stand pressed up against the wall as he's practicing playing guitar and singing. Giving it his all, he's literally singing to the wall. I thought that was a beautiful metaphor for creative people. I see a lot of times, especially in podcast groups, where people ask about monetizing or needing help with a basic concept, when really, with any kind of art or creative outlet, if you wouldn't do it for a wall, then don't worry about doing it for the masses. He believed and was so passionate about what he was expressing and creating, it didn't matter if it was to a wall or an arena. He was doing it out of his own necessity. In June of 89, Nirvana released their first album, Bleach. 
They started to become huge locally, not creating but definitely mainstreaming the new musical genre, grunge. Along with other local favorites like Mudhoney, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Mother Love Bone, Nirvana was navigating a new path wherein the underground feels of the punk landscape were coming to the surface for everyone to consume. The year before forming Nirvana, Kurt had tried heroin for the first time, during which he had been living with a girlfriend. She realized his passion for music and she had, as a nurturer and sort of caregiver, let him stay in their home without paying rent or having to get a job. They were together a few years and had been very much in love, but as the band's popularity grew, so did the distance between them. She claimed that she had found out after he moved out about the heroin use. There was never any sign of it, and he was actually known for talking trash about those he deemed junkies in the area. Already using pot, LSD, alcohol, and anything else he could get his hands on, the popularity of the band didn't help. He wrote in a journal about only having used heroin 10 times in a three-year period. On September 24, 1991, Nirvana released their follow-up to Bleach, Nevermind. If you weren't alive or in the United States at the time, it's hard to describe the effect the album had on, well, everything. To give you an idea of how gargantuan it was, when it became the number one album three months after its release, it knocked Michael Jackson out of the top spot. It has, in its 30 years, sold 30 million copies. Other names in that category? Madonna, Pink Floyd, Santana, and the Titanic soundtrack. For comparison, Adele's 21, which seemed like every human alive had a copy of, has sold only 13 million copies. Everything changed with Nevermind. Grunge was validated. Fashion changed. You were expected to be wearing some variation of torn jeans or overalls, a flannel. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I was not giving this script. That's right. It's fine. No, that that's what I was just about to say. Like a flannel tied around your waist and a band t-shirt. My God, I'm so sorry. And of course, you didn't ever think about needing to wash your hair. Kurt became a household face. Many of my friends had posters on the walls. And while my mom hadn't yet come around to grunge, I was allowed to listen to it at my friend's house. At eight years old, it seemed very scary and loud and dangerous. There was a naked baby on the cover for crying out loud. And all of that was just in my little world. The rest of the world developed the same thirst for this new sound, stretching Kurt thin. Kurt had been dealing with a stomach problem since the late 80s, a pain that he would go to multiple doctors for, never really getting answers. With his first girlfriend, she would recount stories of them driving somewhere and him needing to pull over so he could throw up. It was a near constant source of pain and discomfort. Eventually, he told a reporter he had started self-medicating, except that his medication was heroin. In January of 1991, Kurt had a number one album and was in a notorious love affair. He had met Courtney Love, the front woman for the band Hole, the January prior when Nirvana was playing a gig in Portland. Kurt had wanted to stay single a while now that he was in a semi-famous band, but he was open about how he felt a strong pull towards being with Courtney and that the time that they had away from each other was starting to become more and more difficult. But she wasn't without Courtney's versy. Oh, boy. Controversy. Okay, Dad. A still-to-this-day rocky relationship between Courtney and Dave Grohl started back when she and Kurt were first dating. Dave always knew how to say just the right thing to get under Courtney's skin, which, when your best friend and girlfriend don't get along, it can be a source for stress. In those moments, when Kurt is practicing and Dave is shit-talking, you see Courtney being extremely reactive— 
yelling, name-calling, screaming, anything to get the attention back on her in what she felt was a positive way. When watching the old videos of Kurt and Courtney at home, I didn't see a fame-hungry, manipulative, nefarious woman. I saw a nearly manic, attention-seeking, insecure, damaged young person in her early 20s with a traumatic background. Sure, she was loud and brash, but it seemed to counter Kurt's introverted quietness, the yin to his yang. Kurt and Courtney were married a year later. It was when Nirvana was at the top of the world and could choose to do anything they wanted, whatever gigs, appearances, tours, performances, they had their pick. But Kurt, now using heroin more regularly, along with Courtney, decided they would hide away in their home for six months. While the entire home isn't shown in the videos, you feel like you can kind of smell their place. They're smoking constantly, there's drug use, and you know, grunge wasn't exactly the genre of hygienic lifestyles. That being said, there were many heartwarming moments where you can see their deep connection and just how much he loved her. You can also see that Courtney loves him, but she struggles, even in just a home video, to allow for Kurt to have any attention. There's actually this bit where he's in the bathroom shaving and turns to the camera that's being held by a friend, and he starts to do this funny Soundgarden impression. As soon as Courtney realizes he's being hilarious, she doesn't step back or start to watch him and laugh. She stays standing behind him and drops her towel before walking closer, talking about her breasts. Again, a negative attention-seeking girl in her early 20s. Annoying, yes. Rude, unintentionally. Mean-spirited, I just didn't feel that. Kurt and Courtney were married in 1992 and, both anxious to correct the mistakes of their parents and create the stable, loving life they never had, they had a baby. Frances Bean Cobain was born August 1992. While they were planning on having a baby and excited by it, the drug use didn't stop. Courtney claimed she had stopped, but Frances was born addicted to heroin. Miraculously, she didn't then, and even now at 28 years old, appear to have any long-lasting issues from it. Giving birth to a baby on drugs leads to state involvement. State involvement, when you're the biggest rock star in the world, leads to tabloids and gossip. So from the start, Francis was taken to a family member before a parenting and drug plan could be in place for the Cobains. This was all tabloid fodder and of course led to more embarrassment for Kurt. Tired of the critiques and people talking about his private life, Kurt even left an uncharacteristically aggressive voicemail for a journalist, basically threatening her because she had crossed the line in talking about his family and not his music. So often you hear about Kurt that he couldn't handle the fame. In my non-expert opinion, it wasn't so much the fame, but that he felt he was truly an artist. So to have his art watered down into trash to sell magazine was what had him frustrated. Then, in 1993, he had an overdose before a show. He recovered and the band continued, releasing In Utero, another huge hit, having gone on to sell 15 million copies. But the stress of being a drug-addicted, new father, musician, and one of the most famous and sought-after people on the planet was taking its toll. In March of 1994, Kurt had another overdose, taking Rohypnol and drinking champagne in a Roman hotel. That episode led to him being in a brief coma after having his stomach pumped. Fifteen days later, it was reported he had locked himself in a bathroom with a gun and pills. At that point, he was sent to a rehab facility in Los Angeles. But then, on April 4, 1994, Kurt disappeared. He had used his credit card and the rehab's payphone to buy two plane tickets from L.A. to Seattle. It is still unknown who used the other ticket. 
Kurt's whereabouts wouldn't be known until April 8th when his body and a note would be discovered in the greenhouse above the garage at his Washington home. On April 5th, the day after leaving rehab, Kurt had put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger after shooting up with heroin. An MTV News special report on a very sad day. Kurt Cobain, the leader of one of rock's most gifted and promising bands, Nirvana, is dead. And this is the story as we know it so far. Cobain's body was found in a house in Seattle on Friday morning. He was dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Police found what is said to be a suicide note at the scene, but have not yet divulged its contents. Cobain, who was 27, had reportedly been missing for about six days, according to his mother. Or that's what the Seattle Police Department reported. While I'm not a conspiracy theory person, I do want to share some of the ideas surrounding Kurt's death because they are ubiquitous. When Courtney learned Kurt had left the facility in L.A., where she also was, but in a hotel, she hired a private investigator, former West Hollywood police officer Tom Grant. I reached out to Tom about an interview, but he politely declined, stating he had been burned too many times by bad editing on other podcasts and had given many interviews. He also gave permission for us to use clips from his website. After Tom was hired, he decided he had come to a different conclusion than the police, and he used his findings to create the docudrama film Soaked in Bleach. While I am personally working on not talking badly about things people spend time and effort in creating, this film was a mess. It's not bad in that it's unwatchable, it's bad as in this dude sucks. As his film feels like a lot of opinion, I'll be sharing my counter-opinion and any counter-evidence to what he shared in the film. Right out the gate, Courtney, while yes, she was a young, high Courtney love, is portrayed as a charlatan mess that couldn't wear entire outfits or tell the truth. Tom was offended by her using the F word upon their meeting, and he has even claimed that early in his investigation, he was looking towards her as a suspicious person. Okay, so you've been hired by a famous person with a drug problem, and you're surprised that she's a bit off. There's one point where in the same sentence, he's expressing frustration about her not telling him the truth and that she was actively using heroin. Kind of a count the votes or stop counting situation. Additionally, Courtney is one of only two women talked to or about. I'll get to the other woman later. Even in the dramatic reenactments, you can tell that Tom was a burnt-out cop that had been dealing with drunkies and fame whores of West Hollywood for a long time, and his patience for such people was a zero. It felt like he had disdain for Courtney from the start. By the end of my yelling at the TV for two hours, I walked away with a few thoughts. Yes, there are parts of the investigation that should be reviewed. Yes, there are potentially things that happen that might point away from suicide. Tom Grant maybe hates women, and Tom Grant has a lot of white male rage. Finally, the whole thing seems like a big excuse for why he wasn't good at his job. Instead of saying, I screwed up and should have done XYZ, he doubles down on his screw-ups and makes excuses or passes the blame for all of them, never taking into account the mental capacity of the people he was trying to work with, people that were under the influence and probably struggling with other mental health issues. In my opinion, all of his buck passing canceled out most of his theories for me. That if he had taken a little bit more responsibility, his ideas might have had some more credibility. He ended up coming off as judgmental and egotistical. That this wasn't about Kurt, it was about how Tom is right, damn it. And now he's built too much of a following to be able to step back and say, hey guys, maybe we should consider other options. So what was it that he found and what do people have to say about Kurt's death? 
Obviously, the foundation for most conspiracies is that Kurt wanted a divorce, but Courtney didn't because of their prenup, so she either aided or hired someone to murder him. Tom claimed Kurt ignored over a dozen of Courtney's calls while he was in rehab. That does sound like perhaps they were having marital troubles, so that's fair. Except that if she was in L.A. and didn't know where he was and he wasn't taking her calls, how would she know what to tell a hitman? On Thursday, April 7th, Tom and Dylan Carlson, Kurt's best friend, joined up to talk about Kurt and if Dylan felt suicide was something he should be worried about. Dylan swore up and down that Kurt would never do that, so they went to the house. While Kurt's house was in an affluent neighborhood, it wasn't a kind of fenced-in Hollywood mega-mansion. It was, in total, 8,000 square feet. At the house, they searched through the bedroom and found a package of sedatives. Dylan said that they were from England and they were prescribed. Courtney said the same. So, through the house, they continued their search, but found nothing. If you've ever seen any of the photos or videos from the house, you'll notice that pulling into the driveway, there's a house to the right, but straight ahead is the garage. Above that is a kind of walkway with a railing surrounding what was the greenhouse room. That greenhouse was where, even then when Tom was searching, Kurt's body was lying. While I'm not blaming him for not looking there, I do take issue with it. One, if you're searching a house, especially if you think someone may have killed themselves, wouldn't you at least ask if there is a garage? The garage is a very common place for people to take their lives. Number two, Tom claims, as does another person in the documentary, that as he was pulling up, it was rainy and dark, making the structure impossible to see. I know I wasn't there and I can't speak for it, but I find it really hard to understand how your headlights wouldn't have at least hit on the building or that you wouldn't have taken a flashlight to look around the property. He claims that this was part of the proof that Dylan was in cahoots with Courtney to hide what they had done because it was Dylan's fault for not pointing out the garage. This is a prime example of what felt like the big inspiration for Tom's movie to say, no guys, this is why I'm right, instead of saying, I screwed up, I should have been more thorough in my search, and it cost us time. When talking to Courtney, these were some of the perceived lies that Tom felt she was telling. That Kurt wrote her a letter and left it in her bedroom. She claimed to have given it to a detective working the case who then told her to destroy it because it wouldn't do her any good and had hurtful language and threats of divorce. Tom claimed he didn't find it the night he was looking through her room, but he also missed an entire garage, so... But yes, it does sound odd to tell someone to burn a letter from their now-deceased husband, so this one maybe falls in the category of they're both wrong. Tom took issue with Courtney filing the police report and using Kurt's mom's name. He thought it was so she could lie on it, saying Kurt was missing from rehab, had a shotgun, and was suicidal. But, I mean, at least two of those things were accurate. This was also coming from a woman that had just spent a lot of time in the tabloids and was fighting to keep her child. So my non-professional guess would be that she was actually trying to deflect attention. While telling Kurt's background story, Tom literally talks only to childhood friends. And I mean no offense to those people, but the presentation gives the feel of them being real hanger-on types. Like, that they didn't have a deep or close relationship with Kurt, but maybe went to school or hung out with him here and there. Again, I don't know the truth surrounding their relationships, but the storytelling is very suspicious. For example, one guy says, my last memory of Kurt, and I thought the end of that sentence would be something like, we were playing guitar at my house or we were partying before he moved. Instead it was, I went into a gas station and heard his death announced on the radio. To me, that's just not really a memory of a friend. 
It's related, but not what feels genuine. All these same friends, totally different ones than those that were in the montage of Heck film, talk in ways about Aberdeen that just don't seem to jive, especially for those in the Pacific Northwest that have either been to Aberdeen or similar towns. It's not that they don't have their charms. They just also, like everywhere around here, have a crushing sadness to them. It's part of the Northwest's charm. So to have them all say he was optimistic and didn't seem depressed and that he was loving living in Aberdeen just kind of hit wrong. Almost like it's so far the other way, it's silly. It felt as though Tom would have cut it if anyone had said something along the lines of, yeah, we were all depressed, it's cloudy a lot, people work crappy jobs, no one has any money, and drugs are everywhere, but he was always excited to party with everyone. While continuing with his backstory, there is never a mention of Kurt's childhood trauma, his parents divorcing, being bounced from house to house, his parents' verbal abuse, his mom's abusive boyfriend, drug use at a young age, and so on. Which, when you're talking about someone that may have taken their own life, it's probably important to talk about what the groundwork was to his life and mental health development. They do touch on the rumors that multiple people in his family had died by suicide and that Kurt felt he had a suicide gene. These still remain debated as Tom's film showed that they were accidental deaths and other articles mentioned different family members that did in fact take their lives. When Tom was first hired, he met with Courtney and they discussed how she had cut off Kurt's credit cards in order to track him down, knowing he wouldn't be able to handle being on his own. She speculated that perhaps he was hanging with his newer and very close friend, Michael Stipe of REM. He wasn't, and Michael has since gone on to say that he knew Kurt was experiencing untouchable levels of anguish during that time, that Michael even presented different project ideas to Kurt as he hoped it might pull him out of the dark place he was clearly in. If it wasn't a friend he was with, Courtney went on to speculate that perhaps Kurt was having an affair, and that was who the second ticket was for. This led to further conversations about the letters and talks of divorce. For the most part, it sounded like, yes, that was the direction they were headed, but there were never any papers formally filed. Courtney then toyed around with an idea of telling the papers that she had attempted suicide and was hospitalized as it would hopefully lure Kurt out of hiding to check on her. Additionally, according to Tom, but also not really surprising, she then said that with a whole album coming out the following week, basically no press would be bad press. The story was never released and it didn't need to be because on April 7th, she required medical assistance at her hotel because she had overdosed on heroin and was then arrested for drug possession. Courtney also complained about Kurt throwing away the opportunity to play at Lollapalooza. For you young folks, it's like Coachella, but with good music, with the exception of Baychella, of course, for nearly $10 million, when Hull could have played it and made some money, not that same amount, though. On April 6th, Tom headed to Seattle to deal with his guys he already had on the ground. By then, he felt that Kurt hadn't been suicidal and that he was just under a lot of pressure. Dylan continued to go on about his friend, not understanding why he and Courtney were married, that they were always arguing. This was the same Dylan that is later talked about being not only friends with Kurt, but then dependent on Courtney after Kurt's death for housing, money, and drugs. Dylan, an innocent bystander that maybe participated in Kurt's death but also not? Another person in the same realm as Dylan was Michael Kelly DeWitt. He had been friends with Courtney before they dated for a short time. As he was a trusted longtime friend, he became Francis's nanny. But Tom wasn't convinced he wasn't part of whatever had happened to Kurt. (laughs) 
During one of Tom's visits to the house prior to Kurt being discovered, Tom found a note left on the stairs. It was written by Callie, the nanny. It read, Kurt, I can't believe you managed to be in this house without me noticing. You're a fucking asshole for not calling Courtney and at least letting her know you're okay. She's in a lot of pain, Kurt, and this morning she had another accident and now she's in the hospital again. She's your wife and she loves you. You have a child together. Tom felt that, that was a fake letter. So did Cobain family lawyer and Francis's godmother, Rosemary Carroll. She agreed with Tom that she felt the note was a setup, either throwing people off their trail or framing Courtney. Then came the discussion about Rome. There is a pretty wide acceptance that what had occurred in Rome, with Kurt overdosing and ending up in a coma, was merely an accident. And Courtney didn't talk about it as being a suicide attempt until after Kurt was deceased. There are also conflicting reports on if he had taken just a few pills or dozens. I have a personal motto for relationships, that no one knows what is going on in them except for the two people involved, and I feel like no relationship is a better example than Kurt and Courtney's. While yes, his lyrics, writings, and drawings were dark and clearly written by a person struggling with demons, Chris Novoselic even said it was clear in Kurt's art from the beginning that he was struggling with a sadness. When asked about his lyrics, especially ones like, I hate myself and want to die, Kurt said they can be taken as seriously as a joke. But again, was that satire or a way to cover his true feelings? And in the Rolling Stone interview shortly before his death, Kurt claimed he was the happiest he had ever been. Tom and Dylan continued driving around town, going to all the shady motels he and Kurt used to go to for weeks on end, surviving on chips, soda, and heroin, hoping to find any sign of Kurt's presence. Dylan is an interesting subject in the film. See, Dylan is a user just as Courtney was, but when it comes to Tom, Dylan was kind of his co-detective and couldn't do wrong or tell a lie, except that he then did blame him for not showing him the garage as part of the cover-up. After Kurt is found and Tom wants to do an interview with Dylan, Tom blames Courtney for Dylan going to her room to get high. His misogyny is very heavy-handed. On the day Kurt was discovered, Tom and Dylan were on the road to a cabin that the Cobains owned, in hopes of finding, well, anything. On their way, the radio announced that Kurt was dead. So if Courtney hadn't found him, and Tom had missed it, who did find him? An electrician by the name of Gary Smith had been scheduled to work at the Cobain residence. He went up to the walkway around the greenhouse and looked into the glass door to see a body lying on the floor. He called his supervisor, and he called the police. There have been rumors about Gary calling, but actually it was his supervisor that, upon hearing the news, did the noble thing by calling a local radio station informing them they would want to hear the news he had. There are additional rumors that he even leveraged that information in exchange for concert tickets. Classy guy. Tom later spoke to that same radio station and continued to dig his heels in, stating how difficult it was to see in the area and that's why he missed finding him. The police arrived and saw right away that they were dealing with a death. They broke one of the door windows to open the locked door. Approaching, they found a wallet, stash box, shotgun shell, and shotgun. Almost immediately, news of the biggest star on the planet being found dead turned the affluent Washington neighborhood into a media circus. Gary Smith started using his story to get money from such stellar news outlets as A Current Affair. The media did get some things wrong, obviously, one big one being that Kurt had been disfigured to the point of only being able to identify him from his fingerprints, but he had used a shotgun in his mouth with birdshot, both of which not only leads to less blood, but that's why both the first responders and Gary stated that Kurt looked like he was sleeping. 
Tom went back to the house as soon as he heard the news and immediately went to the police tape to explain who he was and that he had information the lead detective might want to know. He was shocked that the lead detective at a huge scene wouldn't drop everything to come talk to him about his PI work. While yes, there should have been someone to take his name to talk to him later, I don't know that it's fair to write off an investigation just because you were dismissed and personally offended. So besides Courtney wanting money and Kurt being surrounded by people using drugs, what are the details that make it so hard for so many people to believe he killed himself? Famed forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril H. Wecht explained that on the documentation, suicide was ruled the cause of death on the same day Kurt's body was discovered. Victimology in a case like this should have taken around three weeks. Without information about the days leading up to his death and the toxicology reports, ruling a suicide was hasty, especially given that this was a celebrity whose death was bound to have more eyes and questions than any other case. Tom blames, of course, Courtney, that her report, the one where she had used the mom's name, explained that he was armed and suicidal, planting that idea so that when the cops arrived, that was already in their minds. It would also mean a lot less paperwork. There were reports that he had barricaded himself in the greenhouse, when in reality he had locked a door, which was a twist lock, which does mean that anyone could have locked the door and closed it behind them. There was another set of doors that had a stool with a box on them, but that was just the side entrance. So that one set of French doors was barricaded, but the other was only locked. But because of the lock style, yes, it could have been locked by anyone. Seattle does have some interesting policies surrounding their police work. For example, they allow for patrol officers to call the ME if they feel they have come upon a suicide. So, while they can't medically rule it as such, the non-detective's detective ability can change the course of an entire investigation. They also don't typically develop film from suicides, and even in this case, they had some roles that just went into storage until only a few years ago. They didn't show anything new or case-changing, but I still found it odd and hard to understand why they wouldn't do it at least in this case to quiet suspicions. Speaking of photos, if you've ever Googled Kurt Cobain death, you know that the only pictures are of his legs and from far away, before police covered the windows. While Tom and other conspiracy theorists are constantly demanding the release of Kurt's full body photos, the police have made a respectful choice, listening to Courtney and Francis's pleas to not release them. There isn't anything that can be gained from it, and they don't need to see him in that condition. Not that any of us need to, but especially them. Imagine what life would be like for them. I looked at Courtney's Instagram the other day and still in her comments, person after person, saying things like, we know what you did, just confess, tell the truth. So I'm thinking if those pictures were out, they would not be used for anything good. And to those people, until you find a time machine to be at the scene or you become a detective and go through every piece of evidence, please shut up. Even playing devil's advocate, okay, let's say she did do something to have him killed, but there's no proof. And if something comes out that does prove she didn't do anything and you've been harassing this widow for nearly 30 years as she's grieving the loss of her husband, it's just trash. Another point that goes in the Tom column is that Detective Cameron, the head of the investigation, quit the department when he learned he was going to be fired. Fired for what? For colluding with one of his detectives who had stolen evidence from a homicide scene. They were planning on going back to replant the evidence. So yes, fresh, non-law-breaking eyes should be looking at the case. What? 
Our Patreon episode next week will be going into the case involving a shootout with the cops, a theft, and the cover-up that led to Sergeant Cameron retiring early and casting doubt on Kurt's death investigation. Tom takes issue with several more topics, one being that Kurt was cremated just six days after being discovered, but by then they had run toxicology and I'm not sure what else he was expecting to find. The Seattle Police Department waited 30 days to process the shotgun for fingerprints. Okay, that one is pretty bad. It should have been done earlier, but again it found nothing. There were only four partial, unusable prints found. Then they turned the gun over to Courtney, who had it melted down. How you feel about that depends on your lens. Sure, it could sound like she was desperate to get it back and have it destroyed so that there was no evidence, or perhaps she was given it because it wasn't evidence in a murder case and she didn't want it to become some sort of sick collectible that would be fought over for the rest of her life. I mean, if she was all about getting money, she probably could have held on to that and sold it for a disturbing amount. Another negligent point in Tom's view that the police allowed Courtney to tear down the house, including the greenhouse. Was that like two or three weeks later? Oh, I'm sorry, four years later? Yeah, that seems like a non-issue. Again, you can't leave things like this for people to cling to. One guy in Tom's movie had been Kurt's principal, and his son was friends with Kurt. Their couch even became one that he had surfed on and the guy still had it and was proudly showing it off, so it's not hard to imagine how people would act if they had access to the greenhouse. While Kurt had been using heroin, it was the amount of heroin in his system that does bring up the most red flags. It is reported in Tom's film that he had 1.52 milligrams in his system, a nearly instantaneously fatal dosage. This topic has brought division to the forensics world, that because he was a user, he was able to shoot up before getting the shotgun and assuring his death because his tolerance was so high. Others say no matter who used any amount, there was no way he could have put his kid away and shot himself without browning out and dying first. So that one goes in the suspicious column. When Kurt shot himself, he was sitting on the floor with the shotgun between his legs as he reached down to pull the trigger, which sounds innocuous, but the gun was found with the trigger up and his left hand gripping the barrel. Again, that doesn't sound that odd, except that there was a shotgun shell to his left side, opposite of where it should have landed because the exit chamber was on the right side. Shotguns have quite the kick, so I don't know, perhaps it moved or even as he fell back, it rolled, but he did have a literal death grip on it with his left hand. That led people to think that he must have been holding it that way, meaning the shell couldn't have gotten to the other side. But even a decapitated head can live for up to 20 seconds. So could he have fired the shot, fallen back, causing the gun to turn and his grip to tighten later? Maybe. The other option is that someone was there trying to kill him, and they both sat on the ground, held the gun in his mouth, upside down, and killed him before they kicked or maybe moved the shell. In the greenhouse was a note stabbed into some soil with a red pin, the body of which everyone feels belongs to Kurt, that it looks like his normal writings and tone. But the last four lines are not only written differently, but have language that some people feel wasn't his. The note reads as follows. To Buddha, speaking from the tongue of an experienced simpleton who obviously would rather be an emasculated infantile complainee, this note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk 101 courses over the years since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. 
I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love, relish in the love and adoration from the crowd, which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. Sometimes I feel as if I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do, God believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. It must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasms I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I have had much better appreciation for all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music, but I still can't get over the frustration, the guilt, and empathy I have for everyone. There's good in all of us, and I think I simply love people too much, so much that it makes me feel just too fucking sad. The sad little sensitive, unappreciative Pisces Jesus man. Why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be, full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm, and that terrifies me to the point where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker I've become. I have it good, very good, and I'm grateful, but since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy, only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Peace, love, empathy, Kurt Cobain. And these are the last four lines that people say are different. Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. The note, the gun, and shell placement. The lock and heroin were the biggest points towards saying Kurt hadn't taken his life. But then you have to ask, where is the evidence showing otherwise? It's one thing to say, I think this person did this because of this motive and this evidence. But to work backwards to say, this person has a motive, therefore this must have been a murder, although there's no evidence, is not a strong case. There were not multiple fingerprints on the gun, only partials, so it hadn't been cleaned. There was no issue with his body or blood placement, so he hadn't been moved. There was no sign of forced entry, no eyewitnesses seeing Kurt or other people at the house, or any other evidence that has been shared that would point in that direction. So it's hard to believe that the person Tom portrays as a lying junkie that can't keep her story straight is also a criminal mastermind who is able to plan and execute the perfect murder. Then again, a detective did say, the easiest murder to get away with is one of a junkie. I'll get to why we shouldn't dismiss suicides of famous people, but first, I'll take the conspiracy theory bait. After watching, I did have some suspicions, and if there was something to come out to say someone had killed Kurt, my money would be that it was Rosemary Carroll, the only other woman in Tom's film. 
Even Tom admits it was Rosemary's involvement that had him thinking there might be more going on. She was the godmother of the child that was going to inherit millions, especially if the parents were out of the way while she was a minor. She's also the only witness to a phone call that she claims to have had with Kurt before one of his last shows in Germany. She said he called two days before he was hospitalized to ask for Courtney to be removed from his will. After the discovery of Kurt's body, Rosemary told Tom that he should have found him there as she had told Dylan to take him to the garage. In this instance, Rosemary won out and Tom believed her, leading him to doubt Dylan's motives. Rosemary was also the first to say that the letter on the stairs and Kurt's suicide notes were fake. Her proof was in a backpack Courtney had conveniently left in her office. In it was a piece of paper with a lot of letters on it, like they were practice letters tracing Kurt's writing to be able to fake the last four lines. Interesting that she found that and knew right away what it was. While I don't genuinely believe she had anything to do with Kurt's death, it didn't take much of anything, even resembling evidence, for you to maybe think she might be involved, right? And it's irresponsible, in my opinion, based on a few coincidences or suspicions, to blame a person for someone's death. There have since been 68 suicides dubbed copycats since Kurt's death. While yes, there may have been perceived inspiration from Kurt's passing, it's more likely they were young, impressionable, depressed, and confused fans who were mourning. Not an additional responsibility of Courtney's, nor is it Kurt's as someone that took his life. It may be seen as selfish by some, but it is a desperate act, and what people decide to do should not fall on the shoulders of someone that was suffering. When someone dies, especially at their own hands, it's hard for people to understand, especially if they're a celebrity. How could someone I look up to and am inspired by do something like that? They have everything I want. They have fame, money, get to do what they want when they want. It's the dream. And if they can't make it, it feels scary because life is hard enough. And if someone with everything can't make it, how are us regular schlubs supposed to? But when someone does take their own life and we dismiss it, it is invalidating. There are people suffering who might not know how to talk to someone about it. Maybe it's shame, maybe it's fear. But if you're unable to accept that someone famous has killed themselves, it makes it even harder for your friends to believe they will be heard and supported. It has actually been shown that, while our instinct is to not talk about suicide, it's more helpful if you do. To ask those questions and have those difficult conversations could save someone's life. If you feel someone in your life is suffering with suicidal ideation, or perhaps you are, there are some basic, less scary questions you can ask that will help you understand how serious things are. Do you have times where you wish you didn't wake up in the morning? Have you thought about hurting yourself? Have you made an actual plan as to how you would do it? There are more questions, and while those may sound scary, asking yourself or a loved one could really help put things into perspective to understand that the person is probably safe or maybe they need help. And shaming, blaming, or denying someone's death by suicide only adds to the shame of having those feelings. That's not to say you can't question things. And yes, I agree with the chief of police that the Kurt investigation should be reopened. There's nothing bad that could come from it. Either it closes the case for good and answers all the questions, or it shows that there were flaws in the investigation and the police can apologize, make it right, and potentially get a killer off the street, whoever it may be. Tom continued his investigation even after Kurt was found. He felt he was hot on the trail of Courtney and even informed her he would be looking into everything. Her response was, 
yeah, Tom, do whatever it takes. I want to know everything that happened. Which, if I had gotten away with murder, I would say, no, thank you. You've done your job, and I don't want any more attention on anything. Thank you. Good day. There are obviously a million more details to this case, another reason it keeps the conspiracies going. And perhaps it's that arguing what his end was is keeping him alive. If we refuse to embrace the idea that a musical genius megastar would end his life and is gone, we can continue his existence in our world. So... What do you think happened? I would love to hear from you guys. Okay, I wouldn't love a 12-page email manifesto of why it was Courtney, but if you have thoughts, either from your own research or from today, be sure to send us an email at murderintherain at gmail.com. I'm truly interested in your thoughts. Emily, where do you stand after hearing all of this? As a grunge gal. As a grunge gal, I lean toward straight up suicide and i will tell you why please do he spent the majority of his life as a tortured soul it is not a far leap to come to terms with the fact that you can only live that way so long um i've never seen evidence that swayed my opinion otherwise to be honest and you know i'm not a professional on this conspiracy theory train but I think it's really hard to let go of someone who's so important in your life. And he was to all of us feeling those feelings, you know, your angry teen, um, you know, look at Tupac too. It's like, right. We all, Oh, he's alive somewhere on an Island. It's just hard to let someone so important go. So I could see why people look for evidence. That yeah. There's an otherwise. emotional connection. That's almost like uh, a family connection. You yeah. Know, that person got me through hard times. They can't be gone. Absolutely. But I wouldn't, not want it to be reopened and looked at because I feel like maybe there was something missed or absolutely right. So what's the harm in absolutely. taking a taking I, have a third party take a look and then I think it's a, right now it's still like uh, an embarrassment thing that they're not reopening. Sure, you know that they don't want to be seen as wrong, but hopefully that changes soon. Also, it has been almost thirty years, and I don't. Isn't there a term for the number of people it would take to be quiet in a conspiracy? I, I don't know. There's it, something but... where it's like, you know, oh, if 9-11 was yeah, that's impossible. A, a completely inside job, it would be, you know, 380 people or whatever. Um, and uh, with this, you know, OK, you're talking about a handful of people at the house that, yes, were drug users. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. It means that if they were in the midst of that, then, uh, yeah, they were probably not making great choices and maybe would have done, you know, sold the story for money at some point or something. But in 30 years no one's cracked exactly no one is leaked That's highly unlikely the Nothing. ones that stay quiet or is where it's an actual secret or it's one person who knows right, right. there's so, so many people involved at even this then point, how but... often do we do cases where it's oh somebody was blabbing his mouth yeah <laughs> the one person drunk in a bar and told a bunch of people no so i i mean as much as these stories are easy to get engrossed in i really i really have never seen anything that made me think oh yeah courtney did it or so and so was in on it they were junkies they were emotionally scarred he was severely depressed these are it's a recipe for a suicide mm-hmm. basically yeah and it's uh i i i didn't know about um his multiple attempts i knew of you know a couple of the accidental overdoses and stuff but um yeah when you have that going through your life it, it's almost easier to accept it's like oh this guy had attempted it multiple times and that's not to say it's an inevitable thing because i know plenty of people that attempted it uh when they were younger and 
got sought, healthy, got, healthy right. got help, talked to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it not to say of, you can't. One of two ways, exactly, you know? exactly. The other thing that people overlook a lot is chronic pain. And it's mm-hmm. easy to, to dismiss when mm-hmm. you don't have it. But when you live every day in severe pain and you're self medicate, I mean, it takes a That's toll a great on you. point. That's a great yeah. point. I always say, um, uh, you know, because it's like chronic pain affects you emotionally, physically, uh, your energy, because everything goes to it. And you don't even, yeah. you may even become accustomed to it and you don't even realize the stress it's putting onto you. Let, and especially stomach. You know, I had like a five minute thing last year that I went to the doctor for and was trying to figure out. And that was all consuming, mm-hmm. you know. I and, have chronic uh, neck pain and there definitely there have been days where I just cry like when will this end yeah so and that's just a little tiny glimpse into what somebody's going Mm -hmm. through like i can manage mine with a chiropractor right and uh weightlifting and things but if it's your stomach and there's nothing you can do and i'm sure high like i'm sure i i the amount of that pain that was probably coming from his anxiety that he had had since being so young Absolutely. and medication. And well, I, I was going to ask you, did anything come of the autopsy that would explain it? Like, did he have, um, what do you call them, ulcers or something? The autopsy has not been released. That's kind of a red flag. <laughs> I That's that's my understanding. And the first and thing I, that popped in my head when you talked about his chronic pain of his stomach and self-medicating was we have to know what caused that. I mean, yes, anxiety will do that. That's how... That's how a lot of anxiety manifests, mm-hmm. right? People, mm-hmm. chronic diarrhea, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, like I used to tell people when I was younger, I don't get stage fright. I would get diarrhea before right. a play. That is how right. that manifested. How it showed itself. Right. So um, I thought there would be an explanation there that maybe he had ulcers that were untreated. or wow. The only thing was um, a handful of years ago. No, not even uh, last year, I think uh, a detective was given the case because he said that, and I'm sure most police do this uh or i would hope they do is that they go through closed cases they have detectives that go through and it's just a fresh set of eyes and no matter what it is they just go through the report and see and and uh he did that i also reached out to that detective as well but he's recovering from surgery so maybe another time but um you know and he said i went through there was nothing that stood out that's the thing when you close a case if you have nothing to hide and it is you've done your job having a secondary person mm-hmm. come through and look at data points shouldn't be that scary. Right. We are human. People make mistakes. It is what it is. You see that in every industry. And also, even if they fumbled it and that detective shady, you know, the, the te- detective that mm-hmm. removed the stuff from the homicide scene, there's not much worse that could come from them releasing everything they have. Be- except for the photos, because I think they should release the autopsy. Yes, because it's it's allowing for all this stuff to manifest. And OK, if we see that some detectives screwed up and didn't follow protocol or, and hopefully that's the extent of it is a couple of things were missed and not that things were set up or something. But, um, you know, it's not going to be a worse result than everyone thinking uh, he's not dead or he was murdered or <laughs> well i mean there is the potential that the evidence that comes out does fuel the fire a little more yeah but... for sure okay here's one question i have so yeah. they, you, you talk about the heroin dosage being incredibly yes. high that people would question whether yes. anybody no matter how long they've been a user how much they take uh wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. uh, function did they have a, a professional speak on that like someone they did they had that same forensic pathologist and his whole thing was like he would have been out cold before the needle was like done, 
the plunger, basically. And other people say, if you're a, a regular user, you could have been doing almost twice the amount and still been able to function somewhat. So it's That's it's truly, it, the, the issue is because of what it is, it's not something where um, you can scientifically say, like, you can have this much fluid in your lungs before you drown. You know, that's for everyone. Drug use, same with alcohol. Yeah, it varies so tolerance. much. You build yeah. a tolerance. Also, and there's nothing that you can look up to be like, oh, look at in his body, his bloodstream was XYZ. So we know that his tolerance was as, whatever. I, as much as I hate to say this, a medical examiner has to know a lot about a lot of things. That doesn't mean they're going to be an expert in that's drug totally usage. That's totally fair. Yeah. So I feel like you have to have someone who is a chemist who right. has a background in addiction mm -hmm. and understands that. But even then, it's all relative. You have no idea. Yeah. You can't reenact that experiment. No one's going to be just his body yeah. type, his size. Well, and, you know, in, in Tom's in uh, Soaked in Bleach, they reference uh, a study that was done, but it was in Germany, and they showed this guy who was still functioning on the same amount. But that, again, that was his only reference. He didn't... He he. The thing with Soaked in Bleach is it was like you were at a court case and you only heard the defense. Yeah. he It was not like all encompassing. And and so to have him only reference that as opposed to saying, but there are people that disagree, but here's what we feel. And then I have to note how sad I didn't realize there were, would you say, 68 suicides mm -hmm. that they were copycats or right. inspired by. Or, right. That is that is terribly sad. Right. But again. It is not a hard leap that people into that music scene oh, absolutely. are depressed or have had previous experience. Attempting well, and how suicide. often do you hear about people where uh, a parent dies or a spouse dies and then they end up taking their life? So, so a, it is, a loss like, is a loss. And I think it's you're unfair to feeling those things. And then someone exactly. you look up to or who is important to you does it. Yes, it is another reason to do it. I understand right. that. But wow, that's a. Yeah, and it feels it's like a, a almost like fear mongering, like like suicide is so scary to talk about that if we even talk about it, it'll just plant that idea. You know, it's not the happening. I'm sorry to reference such a terrible film. Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> you know, it's not it's not just floating in the air where if we talk about it or someone um, does it, that now people are just going to do it. It's ah, I just, I started a book a while back about. Uh, it's like futuristic and all the teenagers ha have a suicide gene and it's really hard to get anyone to live past the age of 17 or whatever. It's the most bizarre book. I'm not done with it. I look <laughs> I'll get back to, to you. hearing the I'll end get of back it. to you on that. Um. <laughs> um, and I know that this is a heavy topic, especially first thing on a Sunday morning, but we are approaching a super storm of depression being the winter months. The sun is already setting around four o'clock our time. Uh, the gray skies are here. The rain is here. The holidays are coming with the cherry on top being quarantine. But to talk the talk, have you or in the past or currently with everything going on had suicidal ideation or, you know, anything Me? like, yeah. Um, no, not really. I'd say COVID is the closest that I've ever felt to what I can only assume is being depressed right like not having any options you know yeah feeling like you're stuck mm -hmm. when when is the end gonna right. be so when, and yeah. and that's i'm not gonna say that's what it's like because i don't know yeah. but no i haven't um i have been close to people who who have and it's hard especially as an outside person like trying to relate but it, it's more about like hey, i'm here for you like let me help you i will say it's really hard right now I had to actually say something in a meeting. Somebody made a joke about 
being suicidal because um, like all oh, the weather and you know oh COVID I can't do anything and it's it's like I'm happy we feel comfortable talking about it but you cannot make light of something that somebody could easily do absolutely so that that's been a, a frustration of mine I feel like as I get older and work in corporate America more and more people joke about it and it's mm-hmm. it's hard and it's hard to be like the negative Nancy that's like hey Right. It's a real problem. Can we not make Because, yeah, it's of so misconstrued. It's like, oh, we can't make any jokes. And it's more like, well, no, no what people if you're are struggling a, what with What if you're it? in a meeting with someone who has suicidal thoughts? Mm-hmm. It's exactly like what I was saying about not accepting Kurtz. If you're making a joke of it, okay, well, I know I can't come talk to you because you find that to be a joke. You know, you're not going to take my feeling seriously. You know, if I hear you talking about it and like, oh, yeah, suicide, I'm going to kill myself. Uh-huh. And then I come to you to be like, hey, things are really, really hard and things are really, really bad. You know, I have someone in my life right now that is very open about how they're feeling through everything. And it doesn't feel scary at all. It's almost comforting to feel like this person feels safe enough to talk to about, about it. Talk to you about And they are keeping me posted on things. They're talking to a mental health professional. They are doing all the right things, including talking about it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up when I was a teenager definitely got close in ideas a few times and uh just because my mental health i didn't understand and things weren't talked about so i didn't know you didn't know you could get some oh i can have depression when i'm 14 mm-hmm. <laughs> i can i shouldn't be it definitely thinking. was not mainstream right talked about right and you know and, and that's not on my parents at all that was just you just didn't you know i don't approach it with white gloves you know it's not oh my god you said you're feeling this way and now i can't we have to be so careful so that i don't break you or and that's not it at all it's okay what do you need from me and what Mm -hmm. can i do and how are you doing today and let me check in and yeah and um and just living life and keeping that conversation going so i know where they're at and they have a place to talk to and they have people to talk to interestingly enough chloe told me someone she's friends with has been posting on a social media about having those feelings, but it's definitely more in a look at me kind of way. But oh, I told right. her, I'm like, you, even if that's what you think, you can't assume that. Exactly. Because how else are you going to get help? Mm-hmm. And there are people, you know, I remember back back in the grunge days you know it was always dismissed like oh it's just like oh they're just wanting attention or some sort of call for help maybe that's the case but wouldn't you rather be safe right and sometimes it does take that because you're not being heard okay then maybe i'll take pills because that's a you know air quote safer thing to do because you might survive it Mm -hmm. and i need help that means there needs to be some conversation going on, yeah. you know? Yeah, and social media, that's great to teach her at that age to be like, hey, even if you think they're joking or you think they're just trying to get people to, you know, give them likes. Yeah, exactly. You know. So d- did you ever, do you have anyone close in your life who committed suicide or attempted? Um, couple kids from high school and then a student. One that I'm aware of from my high school and it was, pretty awful it was a he lit himself on fire yeah it was like a buddhist thing, oh was he doing it for that yeah oh wow that's really intense yeah I mean, that and was that's the such first a that's time. such a different realm of that too that's such a cultural cultural faith-based yeah. thing outside of the media and like you know kurt cobain that was like my first mm-hmm. experience knowing someone who did that and it was just such shock it's mm-hmm. such a shock to hear that yeah 
And then it'd be someone that you just only have memories of who was a happy person or mm-hmm. optimistic. It really kind of slaps you in the face like you just don't know what people are going through. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing, too. Oh, but they're so happy. Well, Robin Williams, Chris Cornell. Uh, fake it. You fake Chester it. Bennington. Yeah. You know, all these people that... Yeah, you just don't know what's happening. So that's why we have to talk, talk about it and ask. Yeah. You know, it's like that's our one thing is stay alive, keep going, exist, you know, and to know that your brain can do that, I think, is what feels so scary, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's almost like an inner betrayal, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So just keep talking about it. You guys talk to talk to everybody with your mask on. Kurt Donald Cobain was yet another member of the 27 Club, a young, unworldly, talented person gone too soon. His lifelong struggle with attachment, attention, rejection, anxiety, stomach pain, addiction, depression, while being a musical genius, should be acknowledged. For you mental health folks, he had a very high ACE score and checked many boxes on the National Suicide Assessment. Relationships were strained, drug use was prevalent, and his emotional toolbox was mixed up with a stash box. I'm a fan of Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. For me, after doing my research, readings, viewings, and writing, I don't feel any doubt that Kurt died by suicide. I wasn't there, so I can't say 100%, but the evidence, even with the mistakes by the police and peculiar issues through the case and with the people involved, There's nothing to really prove otherwise. Perhaps if he had been able to find support that showed him the same love that he had for people, a doctor that wouldn't stop until they solved his stomach problem, people in his circle that weren't in it for the fame, money, or drugs, mental health professionals that could hear him and give him the tools necessary to manage his emotions, he might still be with us today. But because people took his story as their own and decided they knew him better than anyone or that he would never do something like that, He can't rest in peace. While I clearly have my feelings about Tom, I will say I find myself agreeing with Norm Stamper, who was the chief of police at the time. He is skeptical of the police work and says that at the very least, the case should be reopened, and if they made mistakes, they need to correct them. Interesting fact for you old school Portlanders, I had never realized until during the research for this story that Kurt was found wearing a Tom Peterson watch. I nearly dropped one of my two Tom Peterson mugs. If you or anyone in your life is struggling with any mental health issue, please reach out to a friend, a loved one, or call the hotline at 1-800-273-8255. You're not alone in your feelings, especially right now, and you still have a lot to offer the world. Don't let today take all of your tomorrows. I'll get something written this week. I have Chloe, though, breathing down my neck. Mom, give me attention. Mom. Uh, feed me. Hang uh, out with me. Eh, she can feed herself. She's Show 11. me affection. Eh, love me. <laughs> Last night, she was like, me. let's go hang out in your bed and wrestle. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, you're still such a child. That's so fun. She likes it when I, like, throw her into the bed. Yeah. <laughs> get a bucket and a mop for this wet ass I like micro penises because they fit really well <laughs> into my ear <laughs> here's the thing even when I was a meat eater I struggled with 
hot dogs because one the little ends were disgusting and I like the butthole ends could not do it I'm like got it might 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 have might Jesus Christ oh you said my friend I thought you said my horse my ponies or my little ponies. oh your little ponies had a whole my thing. little pony specifically not I my gotcha. larger not your, pony not your real or whatever not my real size pony yes real doll ponies <laughs> ew <laughs> Mr. Hands makes real, back. real pony that's the worst product ever <laughs> with lifelike features it nays no wickers. it doesn't it wickers it never it says never nay. says nay <laughs> yes you like that joke M about horse sex <laughs> do you want us to keep talking about it with sausage. I was actually not listening. I oh. was thinking about how I could teach you French braiding. <laughs> there is one guy in my past that I am shocked didn't give me anything. <laughs> not creating, but definitely mainstreaming the new musical genre. Grunge. <laughs> and wait for it. Are you wanting it now? <laughs> Grunge. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. Uh. <laughs> It could be this long and be fat and I'd be happy. <laughs> I'm right here sitting in front of you. Your clit is a fat little knob. No, but I'm a fat dick. <laughs> <laughs> Side note, my dad's best friend growing up is the bass player of Soundgarden. I'll call my dad after. <laughs> <laughs> Hang out with him. You're sick. <laughs> so many wrong things in this room today. Kurt had wanted to stay single a while now that he, he <laughs> <laughs> a man told her a story about a man cutting off someone else's hands. I will just say it involves bracelets, drugs, and seagulls. Italians were not fond of us when we got there. Fair. And I had braces, so they were ugly not interested Ugly Americans. In yeah. I was not ugly. No, no, I no. I meant the, to them. the term yeah. ugly. Yes, I'm sure you were adorable. <laughs> and good to go. Sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, A lot of kids Your favorite phrase. Their oh. virginity is on that trip. Yeah, That's 16 cool. going to Europe. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I plan on losing my virginity when we go to Europe. Yeah, me too. One of Anal. But I've been in that bathroom. Oh, of course you have. <laughs> Blasting beefers. <laughs> I, I think harmonica. You're playing the harmonica. <laughs> Steven Tyler honking on Bobo. Honking on Bobo. That's a, I think it's an album or a song that he has. Steven Tyler it's called Honking on Bobo. It's his harmonica. Isn't that weird that I know that and that I said it? Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. 
We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 